In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to, to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is Chatter by Ethan Kroos, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. And so it's interesting because this book is called Chatter in the Book of the Week that I'll talk about tonight. It has to do with language, so in a way they both are related to talking. Um, this one just came out, I think, actually last week, Chatter by Ethan Crowe, so thought it would be nice to get to talk about it when it's uh, hot off the presses. So look forward to reading that and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is How You Say It by Catherine D. Kinsler. How you say it, why you talk the way you do, and what it says about you. Really interesting book looking at language, um, how we acquire language, but also how language is an often overlooked aspect, or the way that we speak can be an overlooked aspect of the ways that we identify with ourselves, the way we identify others, and even types of stereotypes or prejudices that might um, become uh, apparent because of accents that we might not think about, we might not recognize. A good way to think about how important accent is, you know, they do this study, it's called, or like a thought experiment of the, the neighbor, or it's called something like that. But let's say you were moving into a new building and you are carrying a bunch of things, so and you're a little bit distracted, and someone comes up to you and you talk for like 30 seconds, they say, hi, nice to meet you, and, and then they leave. Now, because you didn't pay much attention, you might not be able to pick that person out in a lineup, but you would probably be able to tell me if that person was a male or a female. And you also probably would be able to tell me about their race, especially if their race was different from yours. That might stay, that might be salient. But what they also find is that you'll likely remember if they had an accent or not, which shows to some degree how automatic it is, right? So if they spoke with a typical, let's say, Native American accent. Now, when I say that, I don't mean Native American like American Indian. I mean Native to America. Um, you might not notice that if you also speak that way, but let's say if they had a Russian accent or a Persian accent, you probably would remember that, which again shows how salient it is. So uh, this book was an interesting deep dive into the importance of language and how we talk. Uh, I learned a lot of things. I'll talk a bit about should you teach your kids more than one language, something that I've even heard mixed things about, and I'll get into. So the book does a great job of exploring how important language is when we learn it or how we learn it. Now, one thing we know and we've heard for a long time is that there is a critical age to learn language. And uh, or a new language, right? So people have said, you know, I'm trying to learn Spanish and it's very hard, but my young child who's learning Spanish from either their school or from someone else, they're picking it up quite 
quickly. And so we see that we do seem to have a optimal time to learn language, or we can say there is a window that once that window passes, it becomes more difficult to learn a new language. So the truth is, it's not that you can't learn a new language later in life, but that it's harder to master it or especially to sound like a native speaker. So when we're born, we can make all the sounds of all the languages, or essentially we have that capability. But over time, based on what sounds we hear, the languages we hear around us, we in a way lose some of those sounds or the the ability to make the sounds and even at times to differentiate the sounds. For example, in Persian, we have sounds like re and khe, which are hard. Even for me, I'm, I'm probably not so good at saying them, but someone who's never spoken Farsi before, never spoken um, Persian before, if they try to pick that up later in life, they can't produce that sound and sometimes not even differentiate it. But when they were born, they had that capability, or they would have had that capability had they been exposed to it. So that's uh, quite interesting. But, you know, how do we look at these studies of when we can learn a language? An interesting way of doing this, or one of the ways where we can be sure that a child has not been exposed to a language, is actually working with children, and she talks about research on children who are born deaf, and at times their parents are not deaf, And so the parents can't communicate to them in sign language because they themselves don't know it. So looking at some of these studies, we can get an idea of when um, these children were exposed to the sign language and how that then developed. And so they find that if they were exposed to sign language from birth, they speak in a native way or they sign native level. If they learned even at the age of five or so, I believe it was, they might be a little bit less, but in a lot of ways pretty much indistinguishable from someone who was born learning sign language. But then if they learn in adolescence, they, or beyond, they still will make many mistakes or errors, or they won't quite be so good. So we know that we need to learn at a young age, probably around five is a, is a pretty cool critical period or maybe seven. Um, And of course, it's not some black or white thing that the window completely closes, but it does seem to um, become harder or more challenging. And even in the book, she cites a, a study looking at the brain and how we even see this, that when children, for example, who are French speakers and native French speakers, when they heard French basically all of the kids, the same parts of their brain on the left side of the brain, the processing, the language processing parts of their brain were lighting up, which is what we would expect. So it was pretty much the same. But when they were hearing English, which most of these children had learned English in school, which meant after uh, it wasn't their native tongue, but a few years later on, they actually saw that it was not always the same parts of the brain that actually were lighting up which is kind of interesting. And the way I think about it is that there is a part of the brain that is really made for learning language, or not only made, but let's say it's the optimal part of the brain for learning how to process and speak language, or maybe it's more processing. And it gets fixed at a certain age, not completely. And so when we talk about the brain being plastic, what we we don't mean that it's 
completely any part of the brain can do anything at any time, but we mean that it's not as fixed as we once thought. When I was even early in my education, I remember learning that you are born with the number of neurons you're born with and that's it. And once you get to a certain age in childhood, your brain is just fixed for the rest of your life. And then we started to see all this uh, evidence that that's not the case that the brain is much more plastic, neuroplasticity. The brain can change and adjust over time as well. Even we can have neurogenesis, the, the birth or the creation of new neurons. But of course, it doesn't mean that this plasticity is the same throughout life in every type of a way. So it does seem that this part of the brain um, in the language processing is really made for language uh, processing. But however, when we learn a second language, what they found in these children was various parts of the brain were being activated when they heard English. Even for some of the children, the right part of their brain, usually language is being processed on the left side, or we see that part light up the most, for them it was the right side. So to me, it's almost like the brain is trying to figure out a way. You know, it's using the parts it has to try to figure out how to learn the language, process the language, and whatnot. But it's not the optimal equipment, so to speak, that is being used, which might even reflect why we don't learn it as accurately. Um, so interesting looking at some research on language development in children, which was quite interesting, and also looking at children we see that they can differentiate between their own language and another language from a very young age. Even infants can do that. So, for example, even at five months of age, it seems like they might be able to differentiate. Or they did a study at 10 months of age, I believe it was. And these babies, if they were shown a video of someone speaking their language and someone speaking another language, and then were given the choice to take a toy from either of these people, um, and they did some kind of trickery to make it seem like the person in the video was handing them the toy, they were more likely to take the toy from the person speaking their own language. So it seems to be some type of preference for people who speak your own language. And we also have seen research that shows that people, for example, favor someone who is of their own race or looks like them. And unfortunately, some people can use this kind of research to say, well, racism is natural or discriminating based on language is natural. And it's a bit of a stretch because noticing a difference is one thing, but how important that difference is and becomes is much more based on society and the culture and the ways that children learn about the significance of that difference. And I think that's a very important distinction to make because unfortunately people sometimes use research like this to say racism is natural. But first of all, race itself is a hard, um, it's not really purely a scientific way of looking at things. It's much more society creating the distinctions that we make that we make that feel so real to us but um, the importance and the significance we place is important just like children can differentiate between brown hair black hair and blonde hair but they don't necessarily have to make it so important or make it a way of judging one group as better than the other that's going to be based on what we as a society teach them and actually as i said um 
black hair, blonde hair, brunette, brown hair. Um, there's that, that famous study that she talked about, or really the experiment in some ways that the teacher, I think her name is Jane Elliott, if I'm not mistaken, but that she did with her children in her classroom that one day it was after the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. He, She said, you know, she tried to create and show, let's differentiate the kids into the brown eyes and the blue eyes. And she made it seem like the brown eyes or the blue eyes are better than the brown eyes. And she made it seem very important. And this label was so important. And she talked about the kids in a certain way saying, oh, the, oh, that's a brown eye kind of way of doing things. And very quickly within that day, the children started to dislike one another. They did the things that we see people do when it comes to things like racism, um, preferring their own group, talking negatively about the other group. Uh, and she did this a few times and eventually it was videotaped. Um, and I think in one of the videotapes, uh, Dr. Kinsler was talking about how when she shows one of the clips in the class, one of the kids says, make sure you keep that that yardstick in your hand because they the brown eyes might get you know, might act out. So basically already assuming they were bad and going to act in some horrible ways. And then she would switch the next day and say, oh, I messed up. The brown eyes are actually the superior, the good ones, and the blue eyes are bad and everything, um, you know, changed and, and switched. And we saw that, that all of a sudden they were seeing one group as better than um, the other or themselves as good and bad. And also even interestingly and importantly, the kids that were told they were superior sometimes would, would adjust. And also the ones that were told they were inferior would start to take that on which is something we want to be so mindful of, of how we are unfortunately affecting children as they're developing when we give them even subtle messages that at times can make them feel that they are not as good as others or not as good as the quote-unquote majority group or whatever it might be. Uh, so quickly she was able to, to demonstrate that. So it's important to recognize that although noticing the differences in language seems to be almost innate to a degree that that even young babies can differentiate or seem to notice and even prefer their own language or the language they're being exposed to. This doesn't necessarily mean we have to hate or dislike other people who have a different language, even though, as she points out in the book, and I thought it was uh, something I hadn't even really thought of, that accent and language, but also even accent, is one form of discrimination that is almost in some ways still acceptable. That if you talk about someone's accent, that's okay. You couldn't say race, that's becoming less acceptable. But to talk about someone's accent and how they speak and that you don't like it or that they should learn the language, this almost still has some level of acceptability. And I thought that was interesting. And she really devotes a good amount of the book uh, at the end, but also it comes up throughout the book, talking about this issue and bringing, in a way, our awareness, as I said, even for me, something that I wasn't so aware of. Um, and when she said it, I was like, oh, that's so true, that we can discriminate based on accent, make fun of even someone's accent. And it's considered okay and actually can be a significant uh, type of prejudice. Now, there was so much in this book, although it was in some ways shorter, under 200 pages or right around 200 pages, um, but there was a lot of interesting things in the book that I wanted to talk about. So I'm going to continue talking about this book, How You Say It, by Catherine D. Kinsler. After this commercial break, we'll be right back. Welcome back. So we're going to continue talking about the book, 
How You Say It by Catherine D. Kinsler, Why You Talk the Way You Do, and What It Says About You. Um, as I mentioned, I, I really think this is a great book. You know, gives you some insights into language, the development of language, also understanding the ways that language can divide us. You had a whole chapter, I think a good provocative title talking about babies called Little Bigots, question mark, essentially saying are kids bigoted because we see there's these ways that they already notice differences in language and prefer their own, as I mentioned before, the commercial break. But as I also said, it doesn't mean just because they notice a difference, it has to be made to feel significant or something we should um, really uh judge people on just like race or you can notice let's say even something like skin color it's not that your child won't be able to see skin color but it's the significance which is what they absorb from culture society and their families of how they should uh, you know judge someone or if they should judge someone based on their skin color or race you know it's interesting talking about race and looking at how language is important skin color can be important they did a study and they i think it was kindergarten students around five or six and fourth graders nine or ten year old kids and they asked them it was kind of interesting if a child is speaking english are they more likely to become a, a let's say a white child speaks english are they more likely to become a white woman who speaks french or a black woman who speaks English. So essentially looking at what would be stable, their race or their language. Now, um, the fourth graders, they said the race. So a white woman who speaks English or as a child, a white child, would be more likely to become a white woman who speaks French and they would give you know explanations. Well, you can switch the, your language, but your skin color or your race stays the same. Interestingly, the white children who were in kindergarten, they said the um, the language would stay the same. So they thought that a white child who spoke English would be more likely to be a black woman, adult, who speaks English rather than a white woman speaking French. So interestingly, we can see that although they could notice both differences at that age, the language might have seemed more salient or more a way of identifying someone or more stable, depending on how you want to interpret that, than was their race. Language was to them more important. Now here's another twist in it. When they did the same test with African-American children, they were more likely to think that the race would stay consistent, that the white child would be a white woman speaking French, not a black woman speaking English. And the interpretation made by the um, people who did the research was that likely because the African-American children, unfortunately, had likely had to face the salience or the importance of race in their own lives or knew how important it was. So they focused more or saw that the race would be more likely to stay the same. So I thought that was an interesting study, but it does show that some of the things we take for granted um, when we think, for example, that race is so important, it's not that it is in an innate way so important. It's because as society, we have made it so important. And I think this is a very interesting um, concept. You know, when I read the book last week by Augustine Fuentes, Why We Believe, and also the book by um, Lisa Feldman Barrett, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. And in that book, she talked about how 
we create a social world, but when we create that world, it feels so natural. When we think of race because of the thousands of times that we've seen it be important and seem so real, we think it's some natural, real thing that has to be very, very significant. But at times when we hear, when we do these studies with children, it give us some insights to see that well, we probably as adults would think that the race wouldn't change, but that's because of we, the way we think of race as so significant, but it doesn't have to be so. So I thought that was interesting. And even looking at the difference between the African-American children who were in kindergarten, how they, like the older white children, thought that the race would have to stay the same. That was really interesting to me. Now, um, as I mentioned in the first segment, I kind of teased this. I did want to talk about bilingualism because this is a very um, important issue for a lot of parents who no matter what whether you're raised let's say if you're American and raising your child here but I know a lot of the listeners might be Iranian and having children and you might wonder well should I teach my child Persian and let them learn English or should I not confuse them which is something we would hear a lot that it'd be confusing for the child to hear two languages so interestingly i'll just share quickly about myself i was born in the united states to two um, iranian immigrants and they actually spoke a persian to me first so that was maybe surprising for people who hear me now do the show and wonder why i don't speak in persian but i learned persian first so if you see a video of me um, or my brother as babies are very very young children we were speaking persian only and i learned english from tv and then going to school um so i, I you know that sometimes people think that's interesting because my persian is not so good right now they might be surprised to learn that i learned that language first but looking at the research um, she shares that there doesn't seem to be this negative effect of having a second language um, she talks about something she describes as the monolingual myth this myth that you need your child to just learn one language to learn it well if they learn two they're going to get confused or they're going to um, not learn the languages well and this does not seem to be the case at times they might at the beginning have a little bit smaller vocabularies now as she points out this is uh, depends on how you slice it because if someone is learning words in let's say persian and english well, for a lot of the words, they're going to know two of them. But if you count them as one, when you're looking at individual language development, um, you might think it's less words. So it depends on how you slice it. But there doesn't seem to be some disadvantage that your children are going to have. So one take home would be that if you can expose your children to two languages and it doesn't have to be 50 50 um, she talks about it in the research it doesn't seem that you need to do it in a certain way and there can be some benefits even if it's a little bit of learning a second language from a young age so there does seem to be some bilingual boosts that your child will get so that will be something that you should likely uh, if you can incorporate into your life for, or your child's life. So uh, I thought that was interesting. Even myself as a psychologist, I had heard mixed things. And so my cousin, when she was asking even recently about teaching more than one language to her baby, uh, I didn't really have such a clear answer to confidently say to do one thing or the other because I'd heard themes of this monolingual myth before that you don't want to confuse the child, it's going to be harmful for the child, or that they're not so sure. But it does seem that 
that isn't the case. And even she says the research isn't so clear that there are so many benefits of being bilingual, but it does seem that there are some benefits and that it doesn't hurt. And so that can be important. Now, what are the benefits that are there? One of the things that's important when we think of language and being exposed to more than one language is that it helps you have more of a diverse perspective on things when you hear and learn different languages. I think it's important when you think about this because language, we sometimes think of language as some kind of fixed thing, that there's just the world and life and ideas, and all languages is finding a word for everything that exists in the world. But we know that it's not true. That, for example, um, you know, in some languages, I think it's the Inuits have many words for snow because there's so many different types of snow. Or even for me, knowing Persian or knowing English, we can look at how for family members, there's different ways that we describe family members. So just maybe two minutes ago, I used the word cousin, which in English, when I say cousin, you don't know if it's a male or female cousin, and you don't know what side of the family it's on. But if I was going to talk about that same person in Persian, I would have to say my dochtar amu, which is the daughter of my uncle, and not just uncle, the daughter of my father's brother. So we see how much more specific the word is in Persian than it is in English. What's really the same thing, the same person in this situation, the different languages have a different way of describing that. Now, is it possible that in Persian, because in our culture, family might even be more significant of knowing father's side, mother's side, and knowing those types of details that we speak in that way and have those kinds of words. It, it could be, um, but it does give you, in general, a more diverse way of looking at things when you have been exposed to more than one language. So I think even at an older age, learning another language can be good because it, it gives you some um, ways of looking at things differently. And as a psychologist, I think another aspect that is so important is emotions. We think of feelings as there's just universal feelings. Now, there might be some sets of feelings like happiness, sadness, anger, fear that are in a way universal. And even that depends on how you, you look at it. But there are very specific types of feelings that some languages have and some don't. And you may be even seen saying things like um, Schadenfreude. I think I'm saying it kind of, I'm definitely saying it wrong. But in German, this um, good feeling you might get at the misfortune of someone else, let's say someone you don't like or someone who maybe you feel like deserves something bad to happen to them, you might have this sense of it actually feels good when something bad happens. Now, in English, I have to explain it with all those words, but in German, it's just one word. So we see that the world isn't just this static thing and then language um, describes the world. There's definitely much more of an interplay between how you see the world and view the world or how a particular culture views the world and how they create their language. And languages, in a sense, are these living things that also evolve over time um, as well or can be affected by things over time. So uh, I thought that was interesting. And so giving your children that diversity of perspective can be good and related to that type of diversity of perspective. It seems that children who are bilingual are better at empathy or feeling empathy. And when we think about it, what is empathy? It's essentially being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And so when you are bilingual, 
when you learn to see things in different ways and also you communicate in different ways and you maybe have experiences where you see a child talking to their parents, let's say in English, but then the grandparents come and the, the, the child knows, okay, grandma only speaks Persian. They'll speak to that grandmother in Persian and then turn to their mom and say something in English, knowing that mom knows English. So that could be another aspect of it by paying attention to people being different and that they speak in different ways and understand things in different ways might make it so that contributes to their sense of um, uh, of communication or of taking empathy and taking different perspectives. And so I thought that was interesting. And they do some research with kids that, for example, they're seeing something, um, and the, you know, they're looking at kind of this setup where there's some toys, uh, and then they're shown it from both sides, and they can see that the adult on the other side can't see everything that they can see. And then so when the adult, for example, let's say there's three toys from the child's perspective, small, medium, and large, but they know the adult can only see the medium and the large one. Well, when the adult asks for, give me the small car, if you are able to put yourself in that adult's shoes, the child will actually give the one that looks like the medium-sized car to them, knowing that the adult can't see the smallest car. I know that was possibly a little bit convoluted, maybe in a way showing I'm not seeing things from your perspective trying to listen to me talk, but I hope that made some sense. But essentially, we're seeing that the children who are bilingual were more likely from a young age to recognize that someone else will see things in a way that is different from them. And so it's quite interesting. So it does seem that if your child is being exposed to another language or learning another language, there are some benefits that would be there and likely they won't have um, really deficits that, that would uh, confuse them, the things that we've heard before. I've even seen research, I don't think I saw it in this book, and so I'm not 100% sure about it, but that children who are bilingual um, can be more creative, again, from that same concept that they can see things from multiple perspectives. So I thought that was interesting. And, and, and you know, to end the book, uh, she talks about, again, that language is unfortunately a way that we still um, can use to, uh, you know, judge others or put others down. I'll say one thing I did want to mention this, showing how language can be used. You know, we sometimes think of certain accents as more advanced than others. So, for example, in America, the typical Northeast type of accent might be seen as proper and intelligent. A Southern accent is associated with things like being kind, and but maybe simple, but not so smart. And then we find that even people can internalize these judgments about themselves, as I mentioned before. Um, but I wanted to share something about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, in the United States, she, uh, she was on the Supreme Court. She actually recently passed away in 2020. But they looked at, and some linguistic uh, researchers listened to her speaking when she, before she was on the Supreme Court. She actually spoke, I think uh, she did six cases as a lawyer presenting to the Supreme Court, compared to when she was then herself a Supreme Court justice. And they found that she, she is from Brooklyn. And so one of the ways that people from Brooklyn talk is they sometimes drop their R's or there's a certain accent that they have. And when they compared how she talked as a lawyer compared to how she talked later on when she was now a Supreme Court justice, they found that when she was a lawyer, she didn't speak in that Brooklyn way. Um, but then when she was later a Supreme Court justice, she did. Now, during that time, she was living primarily in Washington, D.C., so it wasn't that she was being exposed more to 
the Brooklyn accent, but what they think, or what they concluded was that when she was from Brooklyn, but just, just, I should say, but a lawyer presenting to the Supreme Court, she felt the need likely to hide her accent to sound what she thought would be considered more proper or more professional, to be taken more seriously. But then as she became a Supreme Court justice and became more comfortable in knowing that she was already had achieved the the status respect that was necessary, she was able to talk in a way more like herself or what was more comfortable for her. And I thought that was quite interesting to see that dynamic, but it shows how much we can feel we can get judged um, by the way that we speak, a linguistic insecurity uh, that it can be called, because we know how others might think about us based on how we speak with our different accents or the different ways that we talk. Uh, Or people, you know, I deal with a lot of Iranians who have accents, and I can feel that when they're speaking English with the accent, they might have a certain feeling about how they might be judged. And I really had to think about it, and I, I think I sometimes probably do in different ways. You might think certain things. We tend to think people who speak with an accent aren't as smart, their ideas aren't as good. Or as she talked about in the book, we actually think we understand them worse than we do. So they do some research and they find that people think, oh, I'm not really understanding what this person is saying because of their accent. But when you test or see their comprehension, you see that it's quite good. So unfortunately, we tend to think we are hearing people more poorly or understanding them, I should say, more poorly than we do. And we know that communication is a two-way street. So if I think, uh, you're not really making sense. I'm going to give you a face showing you I'm not really getting what you're saying. And you're likely going to feel more insecure about what you're saying and might even say less or just stop or give up or it'll affect the way that you speak. And so we can see how that dynamic process of communication can be so affected by something like accent without either of us realizing that you're communicating quite fine, but I'm judging you based on your accent, which seems to happen in some ways uh, automatically. But if we are aware of it, we can counteract that. And I think the book does a great job of uh, sharing a lot of research, um, expressing ideas about how we develop language, children in language, the biases that we can have. As I mentioned, this idea that um, sometimes we think of it as a way of still discriminating that might be okay without realizing that. And so I thought it was a fascinating book getting me more informed about this, and I hope you'll check it out. That was How You Say It by Catherine D. Kinsler. How you say it, why you talk, the way you do, and what it says about you. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I was talking about the book How You Say It by Catherine D. Kinsler. Why you talk the way you do and what it says about you. And I I was talking about accents and how we can judge people based on their accent, unfortunately, in some automatic ways. Uh, You might even assume you don't really understand them. You might uh, think that they are having communication issues, so to speak, but really it might be the assumptions that you're making that make you feel like they're talking in a way that that is not very good uh, or not clear. Uh, And I was thinking about my own experience growing up in the United States. 
I think, you know, one of the, she talks about a few assumptions we can have people. It's funny, like you talk to someone from a different area, you think, oh, you have such a blank accent, not realizing that to them, you have an accent. So if you talk to someone, let's say, who has a British accent to you, well, to them, you have an American accent if you live here. So she talked about how we tend to assume that we sometimes almost forget that our way of speaking seems like the way and then other people speak with an accent. But of course, to them, we have an accent. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about the experience of talking in a different language. And I had a uh, interesting experience when I was in Costa Rica. This was about, gosh, now it's maybe 13 and a half, 14 years ago. And uh, I didn't know almost any Spanish except for very, very little Spanish. And then um, I also was volunteering at a school for deaf children and knew almost no sign language. And so I was experiencing a lot of lack of language and the way language insecurity, you can say, but in a different way, because uh, I was I was trying to communicate in two languages in different contexts, but during the same period that I did not um, know almost at all. Now, one thing about sign language, sometimes people think that there's one sign language, that everyone speaks the same sign language, but that's not true. Here in the United States, uh, we speak ASL, American Sign Language. But when I went to Costa Rica, they spoke LESCO, which I even forgot what that stands for. But that was the name of the sign language for Costa Rica. I even remember when I went to learn, this was the internet didn't have as much back then. This is around 2006 on certain things. Um, I wanted to buy a book on sign language for Costa Rica. And I would go and most of the, the people at the bookstores would say, oh, well, we don't have a book on Costa Rican sign language, but we have one on ASL, same, right? And I'll tell them, actually, no, it's different. Um, it's a different language completely. And so sign languages are independent languages, just like our languages that we speak verbally are independent languages. Sign languages also are unique and independent in that way. And different countries and different areas will have their own sign languages. But what was good about the experience uh, for me of trying to communicate in languages that I was not very good at was that it was a reminder of how, although we don't realize it, as I was saying, when we hear someone speak with an accent, we make certain assumptions about them. And I realized when I was speaking Spanish, for example, with some of the people that were living there that were, um, you know, helping us communicate with different people, I didn't sound very smart. I couldn't. I couldn't really say a lot of things. I could barely say a few words. I would blank. I would use really bad grammar. And it was an interesting experience. I felt some of that language insecurity in a different way because I was in this temporary type of an experience, but still where I realized I wasn't sounding very smart. Um, and sadly, I think sometimes we forget that. And I think it's important to keep this in mind when you are talking to someone, your assumption, if they're speaking with an accent or if they're having a hard time with the language, let's say, is to think you're going to undermine their intelligence. You're going to undermine the, or you can, I should say, we tend to undermine the ideas they might have to contribute. Well, this person doesn't know much or can't say much. Even she talked about um, this really interesting study where people were told a, f a fact or facts that they didn't know, either in, let's say, if it's English, regular accented English, or the, I shouldn't say maybe regular, but the native American 
uh, accent or a foreign accent, and they would trust the native accent more than they would trust the foreign accent for these facts that they couldn't know. So what I think is interesting is that it shows maybe some level of trust. We trust someone who speaks like us, which might have its own indications, but also this idea that we undermine people who speak with an accent. So my experience dealing with speaking with an accent and not knowing very much was uh, you know, very enlightening in the sense that I realize what it feels like for others if they're in America speaking and it's their second language or third language and they're struggling, that although it might seem to me and my automatic reaction might be to, to think certain things, that that's not true, that these people will... They have lots of ideas and in their native tongue, they can express them more clearly. Or I should also, as I just said, recall that because they have an accent, I might assume I can't understand them when I actually can. Um, and so it, it was good for me to have that experience. Even more so at the school, um, these children, they were all deaf children at the school I was volunteering at, and they were so sweet. And, you know, I was, um, it was interesting also language is very, very important, and it facilitates our communication in so many ways. But I did have an interesting experience of trying to communicate with these kids knowing very little. And I still was able to build bonds and connections with them, and I still remember the children and, and their, a lot of their names. Uh, but I still remember my first day. So I walk into the classroom. The teacher that I'm working with doesn't speak English, as I mentioned. I barely spoke any Spanish and still barely know any Spanish. And I also didn't know the sign language. So I remember she looked at me, you know, they introduced me and there was a kids, I think they were like in kindergarten, first, second grade around that age. And she said, Farid. And then she taught me how to count to 10. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco, seis, siete, ocho, nueve, diez. And I'm showing the people on the Instagram live how to do it. I still remember some very basic things and did that once or twice. And then she said, kind of something like you got it and I was like okay and then she gave me three of the kids and some flashcards that had the numbers written on them and I was gonna I was supposed to show the kids the number let's say it showed the number written as the number seven and they were supposed to show me the sign and I remember I'd show them for example seven and then they would uh, show me seven and then I would kind of have to think about it because I was so new to me. That is that right? And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's right. And I remember the look on these children's faces that who is this grown up who doesn't even know the number seven and they sent him here to teach us or to help us. It's kind of funny now when I look back on it and even right after it was funny for me, even in the moment, I kind of thought it was funny, but they were kind of surprised that here I was trying to, to teach them. And so again, in their mind, it was obvious that they thought I wasn't very smart, which I can understand, that I couldn't remember the number seven or knew how to sign the number seven, that they didn't think I was very smart and here I was to teach them. And so that experience was interesting for me too, to be in this classroom. Um, and it was also heartbreaking because as I got to spend more time with the kids, I knew very, very little, but they would want to tell me stories. You know, children, of course, they want to share. They want to express themselves. So as I got to know them more, I could tell they wanted to tell me about home or something that happened. And they'd start signing all these things and, and it would break my heart. But I would have to tell them, um, I think it was uh, no entiendo. I'm, I don't know if I'm even saying that right. And I think that I'm doing the sign uh, on the Instagram live, something like that. And I would, would kind of, and then I would look at them. They kind of look at me and be kind of like sad, like, okay, like, yeah, you don't, you don't know. Um, 
but so it was like you know a reminder of language it is so important for us how we communicate and knowing how to speak and how hard it can be for anyone when you can't express yourself or when you can't understand what someone is trying to tell you it can be really sad uh, but as I was saying although I could speak very little I knew how to say a few things like m my name and spelling it out um, which took me a while and I had to practice that or saying how old I was something like I'm kind of I think it was the sign I'm doing now I was able to very little communicate with them and again I would try to communicate with the teacher who didn't speak English. And so sometimes she would try to tell me something and, and I wouldn't know. And I remember one time she had to leave the classroom for a few minutes and she told me to watch the kids as they worked on something. And one of the kids kept coming up to me and doing this sign. And I, I, I didn't know what he was saying. And I kept trying to tell him to, to sit down and, and do his work. But he kept coming up to me and doing this sign. And I just kept telling him to sit down. I didn't know what he was saying. I thought he was just trying to be a troublemaker or, or, or you know, do something. It turned out he was giving me the symbol for bathroom, banos, which is, I think, like a B, um, and because he had to go to the bathroom, and I didn't know. And I felt really bad, although later I saw that he was the kind of kid that he tried to, at times, um, you know, be s sneaky or silly. So he maybe even was just messing with me or just wanted to get out of the classroom. But I did feel bad that it seemed like he wanted to go to the bathroom, but I, I couldn't understand what he was saying. And I just kept telling him um, to sit down. But uh, I did get to get close to them. I would play with them. Actually, the first day when we went outside, one of the kids kind of came up to me and it was clear he was telling me to be a monster. So he pointed at me and he said, Rawr. he actually made the sound and he said this and put his arms up. And then I would chase the kids around the yard and and pretend like I was a monster and they were screaming and having a good time and it was a lot of fun and I did get very close to these children and I really enjoyed my time there it was really one of the more meaningful experiences of my life something that I still think about at times um, but what I also thought was important in the scope of looking at language accents and also how we can judge or prejudice certain groups we know that when we don't have exposure to a group we lump them all as one thing. That's part of stereotyping is that we think all the people of one group are the same. Um, she talked about this in the book and how we talk about different groups and their behaviors as more specific or more abstract. But the ways that we can talk in more abstract ways means that we globalize what the person is doing to who they are. But the way we talk about groups is we can say, oh, all the those people, or we might even mention, oh, those Persians, and we might not even say anything, something bad, but we just, the way we say it makes it clear we're distinguishing them as a separate group. Um, but for me, when I showed up to the school, all I could see was, and maybe this even sounds bad, but I'll just share my experience. All I could see was deaf children. Oh, he's deaf, she's deaf, he's deaf. And it was kind of sad for me thinking about these children and what they might experience and, and growing up with what we'd consider a disability. And so I really just saw a whole school and in and, and the classroom I was working with is a classroom of deaf children. But with some time of being there, they weren't just deaf children. Yes, I didn't forget that they were. Of course, I couldn't communicate with them quite clearly. But I did start to see, okay, like I said, there was that one boy and he was a little bit of a, a troublemaker or like to be sneaky. There was another, like a girl, and oh, she's the quiet one that maybe I can go give her some one-on-one -on -one attention because it might be harder for her in the group. Oh, there's that boy and I remember he would always want to show off for me. So he would count. And so it's it's interesting. I had an experience before, but just like, you know, young kids might show you how high they can count and they'll start counting one, two, three, four and go all the way. He would show me with signs. 
how much he can count. I'm kind of trying to do it, but I don't remember all the numbers. And he was showing me his own skills in that. So I was like, okay, he's the one that likes to show me and wants to get that attention. And so the children's individual personalities and characteristics started to come through. And no longer were they just one group of deaf children, but they were children who had these personalities. And yes, they were deaf and that was part of their experience and who they were, but they were so much more than that. And and so it was fascinating for me to recognize in myself this prejudice I haven't had in this way of grouping them all as one type of person or people and only seeing this one characteristic of them. But as I got closer to them, as is always the case, people become more human, more individual, and we don't just see them as some label, as part of some group. And so that was a fascinating experience for me and and related to this book, how you say it, looking at language and how, in a way, unfortunately, we can separate each other or judge each other based on language. And sometimes we might not even realize that language and accent is a very strong way that we still discriminate and might not realize that we do. But it made me reflect on my own experience with these children that I did see them as, in a way, a monolith, as one group. But once I got to know them just after a little while, they took on much more of a personality or became individuals for me, which is something we experience when we get to know people from any group. When from a distance we see them as one group, especially we see them as an other, they just seem like this different thing that we maybe even will likely have a negative bias towards. But if we get to know any individual, they stop becoming just a label or parts of a group, but they become full human beings. And that's what we want to do. And so we want to be aware that Uh, Sometimes we might not even recognize the ways we might differentiate or make people us and them, but language is one that we should be aware of and within language, even accent. And so I thought the book did a great job of that. And I hope you will check that out again. It was How You Say It by Catherine D. Kinsler. Okay, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. 